Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I make my own rules, one Bonko party at a time. I write history and I read celebrities. I am JMZ. Life is a classroom, and I'm here to teach. Welcome back to Historians on Housewives. This is part two of our exciting discussion with Sean Gallagher. Are you all ready for a Bonko party game break? Yeah, let, let's do it. I, I'm not good at trivia. Fair warning. Well, the fun thing about historians on Housewives is that I get to make the games whatever I want. So it says trivia, and I guess it is trivia, but it's kind of not a traditional trivia. So, Is this a game okay. where we're going against each other? Yes, or? the okay. three of you are competing against each other. Uh, to get a crown, nice. like a like a crown win or whatever. <laughs> nice. So no pun intended with the crown win. Yeah. <laughs> so good subjects we. Yes, yes, thank you. Um, I think I'm funny. So question <laughs> question one, and you can write these down. You can write your answers down uh, so that I can we can I can go around and then uh, award the points for who gets these right. Question one. Okay. What Nicolas Cage movie is about protecting the Declaration of Independence? Come on now. Come yeah. on. Yeah. Gotta give me something harder than that, but okay. I mean, I can even tell you the house he ends up in in the end. Come on. And the background <laughs> story. <laughs> well, you know, because we are a podcast about pop culture, I thought we should start with some pop culture. It really, I mean, okay, I think we all got it. So let's just, can we just. Yeah, Sean, what's the movie? It's National Treasure, right? Yeah. Yes. Part one. Part one. Part one. No, it's it's okay, because I think it's okay. It it works. You're in. Um, (laughs) I I know so few of these answers. (laughs) I brought, I think I brought it up with, um, who did I bring it up with? One of our guests. Would it have been Jason Herbert? Yeah, yeah, Jason Herbert. Of sorry. historians at the movies? Yeah. Um, that, like, that movie is really our, ver- like, as historians, our version of, like, Lethal Weapon. Or, like, that is <laughs> the closest we're ever going to get. Or, like, Indiana Jones. Um, and I think it's kind of unsung in that way. That, like, 
as historians, like Nicolas Cage really gave us the one moment where we could be badass. That's a good point. You know what? You're kind of selling me on it right now. I'm going to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> who, didn't, who didn't already think this? I mean, that's the only reason I watch it. I'm like, what? <laughs> we have some redeeming value. Yeah. It's so funny. It's even more redeeming. <laughs> Every time the declaration falls in the street and it looks like it gets run over my face, it's like... You're not handling the documents appropriately. I mean, that is the metaphor for being a historian in the archive. Like, don't, well, yeah. don't these are really old documents. Don't mess them up. Make sure like the oil on your hand is in some way covered or tamped yeah. down. Yeah, it just that scene in particular really gets to me. Also, well, I get sick to my stomach when it drops in the street or what have you, where they're going to use um, lemon juice. But I really feel cheated because when I see the movie, I'm like, wait a minute. The Library of Congress has all those conveyor belts. Wait a minute. The Library <laughs> like I feel like I'm totally vaccinated at the Library of Congress. And then I have to think, Jessica, it actually might be a Hollywood lot. We don't really know if we're vaccinated. <laughs> so I'm, confund- I'm confounded. Next time you're there, Jessica, you should really <laughs> ask them about these conveyor belts. I really should go up to the very distinguished archivist in the Thomas Jefferson room and say, pardon me. Where are the <laughs> conveyor me? belts? Are the conveyor belts open to the public? Because I saw on the major blockbuster movie. <laughs> so anyway, okay, Casey, what's the next question? Uh, again, I should mention I am calling this Revolutionary War trivia, but this is broadly interpreted. So question two, uh, the Patriot debuted in what year? Oh, I actually oh. almost know this. I almost know this, and I'm embarrassed to say why. I don't really know. I mean, I'll take a guess, but I really don't know. Okay, make sure you write your guesses down, because we all like to cheat here. Okay. <laughs> okay, what was your guess, Sean? I said 2000. Is that right? That is correct. That's what I said also. Oh. Jessica, what did Total you get? Total in the dark. That's what I said also, but I only know it because that's why I decided to say self and self said, huh? I really think we can do more with the American Revolution. <laughs> so I had to go back and rewrite it. Not because I watched The Patriot, but then The Patriot came out right as I was rethinking about, can I do something on the American Revolution? And, you know, who was it? Mel Gibson? Is that who started it? Yeah. Now that is not... As a sympathetic... Ahead. South Carolinian enslaver. And his son well, yeah, was cast was gonna... as Heath Ledger. Heath Ledger. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, what I would say is I wouldn't badump um, look now or then at Mel Gibson as the, see where I'm going with this maxi, savior badump bump, but that is really how he was cast, right? Yeah. yeah. So problematic. But it's Ledger. not a good movie. It yeah, he was that in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely not the same um, excitement for historians as when we watch National Treasure. Uh-uh. So, so all of our faces look like this. On Zoom, our Max and I look like this. Mm. <laughs> 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 Next question. According to historian J.R. McNeil, in this book, Mosquitoes potentially affected the outcome of this Revolutionary War battle. So this is a two-point question. If you can name the book and you can name the battle that gets its own section in the book. 
Oh, the battle. Yeah, huh. yeah, yeah. So I'm looking I'm looking for the name of this book and I'm looking for the battle that he particularly talks about in the American Revolution. I remember the book. I don't remember the battle. Huh. I'm trying to think. I've never read the book, but it I can guess where the battle was. I th- I mean, I know the book. <laughs> Sean better know this book. And then uh, I think I know the battle. <laughs> but I could be wrong. If you guys miss the battle, I know you're going to kick yourselves. Damn. Yeah. You ready, Sean? Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah. Do I say it? Yeah, you can name the book if you can name the book. And then you can name the battle if you can do that. All right. I'll say Mosquito Empires is the book. Um, and for the battle, I'm going to take a guess. The Battle of Camden? Wrong battle, right book. Okay. <laughs> uh, Jessica? Oh, are you looking at me, Max? Okay. You know, Max is looking at me like, duh. Um, same book, but I, I, and I don't know the battle, but I imagine it has to be in South Carolina somewhere. Uh, no. But you get a plus one. Virginia? I obviously said Mosquito Empires, and then I put Yorktown. Yes. Yeah. Because he's making the oh, argument that oh. it is like the most pivotal battle in, the, you know, it's obviously like the closer battle of the revolution. But that mosquitoes um, have this impact yeah. that, you know, potential impact. Do you feel like our students, do you feel like our students right now where we've clearly already heard the book once in the conversation? Because when we talked about Casey's Paramore, you, someone thought you were reading that book. <laughs> then we just went through Yorktown and had yeah. a conversation about it being the most pivotal battle. I feel suddenly like my students when I go, oh, <laughs> I did hear that. I'm going to put that together. Oh, I yeah, yeah. together. Yeah. I was thinking swampies. I was thinking swamp. To be okay, fair, I, I just said Yorktown because I assumed that he was trying to make the biggest possible argument he could make. And that would have to be Yorktown. Oh, damn it. I should have real. Yeah. No, definitely. Damn it. I should have had that thing. <laughs> yeah, you got a little too nerdy with this Camden uh, talk. Yeah. What the hell, Camden? Yeah. No. <laughs> Next question How many children did Alexander Hamilton have? And you get a bonus point if you know what name was used for more than one child. It's like, it's a oh, fun God. fact that I love about um, uh, giving children names. Uh, in previous centuries that it was common to have children with the same name. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. Oh, man. You do yeah, not have to know, know the name of all of the children. <laughs> Just how many. I'll take a guess. Did he have like, did he have like five? That's my guess. Okay. Jessica, what's your guess? <laughs> I know nothing really. not about Hamilton and his loins, nor do I know what he called them. I or what they produce nor yeah. do I know what they he called it. go ahead Sean I really think you and I have the same brain because I just wrote down five as well um, <laughs> I don't know any of his kids names Alan <laughs> <laughs> Alexander <laughs> Uh, there, there, answer, there was a they, they did have uh, an Alexander Hamilton Jr um, nice they also had a James Alexander Hamilton, um, just to show that name comes through. Um, but they had eight children, and um, yeah. they they had two Philip Hamiltons. Was one of them the one that died? One of them was the one that died, oh. <laughs> and the second Philip Hamilton was born after the eldest, obviously. 
was born yeah. later. Yeah, after he died. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So they had two Philip Hamiltons, eight kids. Okay. That's so dark. <laughs> <laughs> All right. For some comparative history, when did Canada Uh-oh. become independent from Great Britain? Oh, I know this. Uh, I think um, I Actually, I think I don't want to be like. You so don't want to be too bold. Yeah. <laughs> Wait. Uh, I, uh. Um. I have no idea. So forgive <laughs> me. I have no idea unless we're talking. We're talking about British Canada, right? Yeah. When did Canada we're talking about before the France? The, the entire Canada. When did Canada? Air Canada become independent <laughs> from Great Britain. Um, I'll just take oh. 20, 2010. <laughs> wasn't it? Um, are they independent? Because they're still Commonwealth. How independent we're talking, oh, we're talking God. about? If this is a trick question, I'm going to be really annoyed. <laughs> what, did, what did you get, Max? Talking about? I thought it was 1867. The Canada Act, also called the Constitution Act of 1982, <laughs> in which Canada's constitution, in which Canada's constitution approved by British Parliament on March 25th, 1982, and then it was proclaimed by Queen Elizabeth II on April 17th, 1982, uh, making Canada wholly independent. Damn. Hmm. Yeah. And why is she still on the money? Is uh, a Commonwealth. It's still a Commonwealth country. Mm. Yeah. So it co- totally independent is a misnomer. I cry foul on the play. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say totally independent. Nice. I just said when did it become considered independent? Okay. Um, <laughs> all Next right. question. The, the final question <laughs> in this uh, Revolutionary War trivia. Uh, I would like you each to make a case for what my favorite song from whatever, from either 1776 or Hamilton should be. Whoever is most convincing about what my favorite song should be in this round gets the point. What? <laughs> Unfair bias. You presume we have all watched these musicals and like them enough to care. Yeah, I don't, I don't like that question. <laughs> Can I just say, you know? she's just mad about the love boat. She missed the love boat in Dallas. Our last, our yeah. last podcast. But we did an episode really with music. Yeah, we did an episode, Sean, where I was given the reins to make a game, and uh, it didn't nice. turn out well for Casey, and she was really annoyed at me. And so I think this is her like. This payback. is this is retribution. Yeah. Can, can I answer and say all of them? You're a musical family. All of them? Yeah. Sean? I can see it. Um, I would make the argument for Sit Down John by from 1776 <laughs> because for a very specific reason is I use it to like piss off my friends whenever they're like in the middle of a really long story. Sometimes I'll just like shout out singing that and it like really pisses them off. That's funny. <laughs> That's, That's a really good one. John. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll go with uh, Salt Peter and Pins. 
because I think that you're from 1776 because I think you're um, you want to point out all the hidden labor that these great men relied upon <laughs> to do their little documents. Okay. Yeah. Serious. Yeah, and like take over, <laughs> take over what becomes the United States and all that, and like that, you know, the Abigail Adams of the world, who I know Casey is the biggest fan of. <laughs> now I'm trolling her. Um, yeah. Salt Peter John. Yeah. That's well. Whoa. Keep that in the podcast. That has to make it. <laughs> That's the ending credit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, the song that really gets stuck in my head is from 1776, and it's the it's the Lees of West Virginia. Oh yeah. Oh, I love that Here one. There, yeah, no, that's a good one. Everywhere, Lee, Lee. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. That's yeah, a I banger. Got for you. <laughs> I got nothing for you. <laughs> no, that's that song's a bop. That song's a bop. Yeah. Totally. Um, I think I'll just give you all a point on that because that was really foul. That was my foul play. Um, Ooh, we're shaking for the next time it happens. That is just put Max and I in our place. Never again will we act up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, before there was a time where I uh, got bossy with you guys, Sean used to be my VP in HGSA when we were at Whoa, San Francisco yeah. State. Yeah, talk about an I abuse can so of power. totally see that. <laughs> I was so afraid of you for that whole thing. I mean, not too afraid. We were no, still like, friends. We still hung out all the time. No, you, just, you were just nervous if no, I said yeah. there was something that had to get done. She really wielded power. <laughs> like like a true Bolsheviki. No, yeah. It was tight. Yeah. Like... I forget what there was like something like, Oh God, I can't remember. There was like some like hiccup during the actual day of the conference that I remember like, Oh my God, like I'm so scared right now. Like I can't remember what it was. You decided that you were, that you had to do a sleep study and you were like, I might not come. That's right. That's what it was. (laughs) I was doing it. That's what it was. I tried to bail on the conference to do that sleep study. (laughs) Sleep studies are important. <laughs> yeah. But I can see okay. how that would have struck you as random and inconvenient. <laughs> to say the least, yeah. I'm much more cool. With, yeah. I'm much more cool go with the flow now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so Jessica and Sean tied with one, yeah. two, three, four points. And Max okay. got five points. Look at that, Sean. I know more about the revolution Yay. than you do. <laughs> I guess. It, I mean, the test bears it out. Yeah. <laughs> Flawless. So getting back into this interview, uh, let's talk about your TV viewing. Uh, what, if any, mm. reality TV do you watch? I used to watch... I don't feel like I really watch, I'm trying to think. I don't think I watch any reality TV currently. I used to be a very big fan of Project Runway. Like, I, for the reason that, like, 
I don't know. Like I was like very into like the, the fact that like in every like episode I would watch, I'd be like, Oh yeah, this one is trash or this one's going to win. And I was like wrong every time. Like the one that like looked like a literal trash bag to me would like, they'd be like, Oh, that's art. That's forward thinking. And I, like, and the one I thought was like well put together, they'd be like, this is terrible. And so I was like really into that. I don't know. Is that a good answer? I'm sorry. Yeah, that's, no, like, that's, that's all a, I got. That's I a great yeah, gateway yeah. show. There's so many things yeah. to take away from project runway. It's good. Yeah. I will also and say, also, like, I always felt bad for the model. Oh no! Sorry, go on. No, no, no. You, yeah, talk, you can talk about the models. I always felt bad for the models because, like, they just had to like walk on like national. They had to like walk around on national television, like just like dressed like terribly. Like, <laughs> like you can just imagine, like, the truth. It's the truth. No, definitely. Like these, like these, like women are like trying to like probably make it in the modeling industry, and they're like just like put on this like put on like this like trash bag. Like I don't know. It always it always seems like me like to me like they got a raw deal. Did you ever watch the Osbournes? I don't think I know what it is, but I don't think I don't really remember the show. I wasn't <laughs> sure if you would have watched it with your own like band history. Was it like it was about Ozzy Osbourne, right? Yeah, it was his family. They peeked us behind the curtain, and nobody liked what they saw. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> really, I don't know what you're, what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. Doesn't everyone see, everyone want to see Ozzy stumbling about, close to dementia, um, trying various stages of recovery? The uh, Osborne kids went up and down in their weight. I mean, I don't know what you're talking about. The Osborne real problem. Yeah, no. As a reality show, the Osborne's I think is one of those unsung heroes of reality television. But as <laughs> A kid growing up believing that Ozzy Osbourne was truly God on walking oh, on yeah. planet Earth, and then to see him be like, Jared! <laughs> Jared, <laughs> where are my pills, Jared? That, that was... Damn. That, right, babe. Yeah, that was, how it goes. That was very difficult. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dang. So, yeah, I can see how that would be hard... Yeah, that would be hard for you. I can see it. <laughs> I don't know how we got here. I don't know how we got here to Ozzy sprung out, but don't do drugs, kid. Um, so, Sean, what is your favorite scene from 1776 and from Hamilton? It's not a scene from 1776, but it's like a constant, what would you call it, like a, a motif, a theme, a joke. Um which uh, every time like New York abstains, the guy says courteously. I love um, that too. And, <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah, <laughs> he's always like New York abstains courteously, and like I just for whatever reason like that always like sticks with me. And even when I'm like reading about like New York and the American Revolution, like I'll think about that. That's like, funny. The courteous abstainer. Yeah, there definitely <laughs> there, there is this like. I, I do think that 1776 really captures that sort of tension within New York politics of like everyone's arguing with each other, but at the same time, like courteous. Yeah, like. yeah. Because they're no, also sure. like kind of royalists. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, most definitely. Um, and then they're royalist, in fact, because they're like occupied the entire war. Um, <laughs> uh, and then from Hamilton, I'm trying to think. 
uh, this may be a dark horse candidate here, but like, I love like, uh, <clears throat> I love like King George's like, you'll be back song. I do too. Like, I, I think know. a lot of people love that. Okay. I All right. Dark <laughs> I do too. Okay. Yeah. It's a great right. sequence. Yeah. No, I, I dig it. And like, <clears throat> actually I'll give you a reason why I like it, which is like, I actually think that there's some language there that actually like, like fits like 18th century. Like <clears throat> if you actually like read like King George's like response to the olive branch, um, and, or his proclamation, like declaring the colonies in rebellion. Um, <clears throat> there is like that paternal language in it. Like there's like often a kind of paternal language to Royal proclamations in which like, which I think is like really important to point out, which is that like for like loyalists, <clears throat> at least through the language of the King, like the British empire, the freedom the British empire offers is like safety, right? That like, he's always like, you have been, you know, my subjects and I've extended you protection. Right. Um, you know, and I will embrace you, you know, to like, you know, return to like the security of the empire. Like there's like a language of like paternal security in there that I think is like kind of underwritten about as like a really important loyalist language in which like freedom is defined as safety. And the revolution is like a threat to freedom because it's like so violent and dangerous. What loyalism offers and what the empire offers is that security. And so I think the mm -hmm. song kind of captures that in some ways. So in 2020, a year that was really quite awful for everyone, you actually had an article in the Journal of Southern History, the foremost journal of Southern History, obviously. Not an easy, not an easy catch to get. So the article was titled The Prison of Public Works, Enslaved People, and State Formation at Virginia's Criswell Lead Mines, 1775 to 1786. Can you tell us a little bit about your public publishing process and how this piece grew out of your dissertation work? And then I also would add, how do you have time to publish a piece in the Journal of Southern History and do your dissertation? So oh, man. mix that yeah. up ever, however you want and serve it back to what's cold, please. <laughs> yes. No. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So that, that article grew out of the first chapter of my dissertation, um, which is, um, well, the chapter is kind of more of an expanded story, uh, but what kind of unites both the cha uh, chapter and the article that came out of it is that there's a case study in there about enslaved people who run to Dunmore uh, in the end of 1775 throughout 1776. So after Dunmore's proclamation, Dunmore is essentially a, a floating royal governor, right? He he's <clears throat> he's on board ship and a small, you know, he's got a kind of like a small little fleet out there in the Chesapeake Bay, and he hangs out there for. Um, something like November to, I think he leaves in May of 76, I want to say. Um, and <clears throat> the entire time he's there, enslaved people are obviously trying to get to him. Um, and they also flee to loyalist militia during the few times when loyalist militia will land and they'll try to engage in land battle. And <clears throat> the Virginia Committee of Safety and Council of Safety recaptures many of these, um, these people running away. They, they recapture some in battle, but a lot they capture on route. And so <clears throat> the article in the chapter both look at the experiences of these enslaved people who are almost free. They almost make it, but they're caught and they get sent to, again, the back country where a lot of these public works are. And they get sent to this lead mine in Virginia to produce munitions for the war effort. Um, <clears throat> And there's some really poignant stories in there, right? So I look in particular at the enslaved 
communities that run from um, Mills Wilkinson's plantation. And I think it's Nansenman County, Virginia, somewhere in Virginia. Um, and, you know, one of the enslaved people that runs from Wilkinson's plantation will be one of the most famous black loyalists in history, Moses Daddy Wilkinson, right? Who's a major mm. Methodist, yeah, you know, major mm. Methodist preacher, call, uh, uh, one of the original proponents to go to Sierra Leone, uh, colo- like a leader among the Sierra Leone colony. But then there's also Cuffy Wilkinson, who also yeah. tries to run away, and he doesn't make it Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone. He's captured and he's bought by the state and, and lives his life in slavery, right? Um, in state slavery. And so I kind of use that juxtaposition to look at the kind of experiences of these people who are free for a moment or almost free and then lose it. And they lose mm-hmm. it because of the kind of state the American Revolution is building. Okay. Um, and I'll say this. Uh, so just kind of in the writing process. Um, the editor, uh, the editors of the Journal of Southern History, um, with Randall Hall and others, um, they are just like a fabulous team to work with. Uh, I've worked with, uh, you know, editors at other journals, and of course they're always all great, but like they are just like, they are like really committed to how can we best serve what you're trying to write. Um, mm-hmm. They really like, <clears throat> I like, I don't know, I always felt like at every stage that they really cared about my project and they were even giving me like, not just like kind of like line edits or not just like kind of like, like, you know, you get the reader reports and the reader reports are like, you know, always really crabby. Like, uh, you got to fix this and you got to fix that. And I'm not, I wasn't convinced by that. Um, but like Randall Hall, like wrote like a really nice cover letter where he was just like, you know, here's what you really should do. And here's the things I think that would help you make those fixes. And it was just, I don't know. They were. And so I guess I would say, how, how am I able to dissertate and, and get that article out at the same time is because like the editors there are like, just like freaking marvelous. Cool. I love that story. I mean, um, the mother's day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from blue Nile from timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones. Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast. Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Journal of Southern History has had taken an interesting turn in the time that I was a grad student up until now because mm-hmm. it was a time you would never have expected to have gotten that story. And I've known, thankfully, since I left graduate school, they've become, the, the editorial board has become um, diverse isn't the word I'm looking for. Diver- less scary. There's no other way to articulate <laughs> it. Less, less scary. So I, I am, am enjoying hearing this story. So, Sean, I want us to talk about the portrayal of women in these musicals. What do we know historically versus how do we see women portrayed in 1776 in Hamilton? Uh, yeah, good question. I mean, I think I can at least kind of speak to the experience or to the history of the enslaved of enslaved women in the Revolutionary Era that's glanced at but not really dealt with um in these musicals so i mean famously in hamilton there is that line about like hand me a pen sally right there is that wink at the sally hemmings relationship um Mm -hmm. and so that's present and it's there and, and i like look it's a it's important to acknowledge that it's there um but i do think there's sometimes a difference in the ways um the revolution is talked about for women uh, versus kind of the reality for enslaved women. So kind of the typical historiography, I think sometimes around women in the revolution is that it's like women in the American revolution are seeking to turn, are seeking to make public what's like private, right? In some ways that it's about, about, I'm sorry. Sorry. No, it's okay. You can hear that, right? Yes. (laughs) Sorry. Let me mute. Sorry. It's all good. Okay, I'm muting, so. Okay. Just put it um, wherever so just you were. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> that, um, often the stories that get told about um, women and the struggle of women in the revolution is about how they kind of, <clears throat> how they find ways to make public sacrifices that are then like recognized by men, right? And so it's about like homespun, or sometimes you get like the Deborah Sampson type stories, right? Of like women who end up fighting. Um, uh, there's even that, um, you know, that kind of like the edited volume on women in the revolution that's called like to be useful to the world. Right. And so it's about like, how do women kind of enter the public sphere in the revolution or struggle to enter the public sphere? And I think what's interesting is to look at that from the reverse when we look at enslaved women's um, <clears throat> experience. Right. And so like as Marissa Fuentes says in dispossessed lives, Enslaved women have always lived in kind of in the public world. They've always been quote unquote public women with all the connotations that have, that are attached to that phrase in the 18th century. Right. And so, whereas we have a story about white women doing like homespun and trying to find ways to turn like contributions into the, to the war effort into like a kind of like, um, female citizenship politics or women's citizenship politics, <clears throat> enslaved women are being brought into the war effort without choice, right? And being brought into the war effort for them is absolutely disastrous, right? 
And so um, I look at the experience uh, in one of my chapters, I look at the experience of um, this enslaved woman named Primus and her four year or no, this enslaved woman named Phyllis and her four year old son, Primus. Um, Phyllis is confiscated. Phyllis and Primus are confiscated bond people. They were owned by loyalists. Uh Um, And so they end up, and what they end up being used for is they don't necessarily go to public labor. What they get used for is they're part of um, what uh, South Carolina's bounty system, which is that in 1782, South Carolina passed a law that says every person who um, signs up for into the state, who, who enlists in the state's continental line, um, will receive a slave at the end of the war in, ter- in a, as a bounty payment, um, um, essentially a recruitment bonus. And Phyllis and her son Primus are slotted for the bounty. Like they're going to be used as bounty slaves. Um, and <clears throat> so for them, like <clears throat> for these, um, uh, for Phyllis and Primus, right? Like they don't have a choice. They are, they like for them, like being publicly useful, being like brought into the war effort, like is an act of violence rather than a kind of um, uh, an act of independence. And I try to kind of bring out those differences in the dissertation, right? And so for Phyllis, for Phyllis, what is her goal? Her goal is not to be in the public sphere. It's to escape public eye. She wants to be on, she doesn't want to be in the archives. She doesn't want to be in writing, right? She doesn't want to be seen. She wants to be like, all of those things are slavery. Being in the archive is being enslaved, right? Being written about is being, is, is being, is, is a product of being in mastery still, right? She wants to be unseen. She wants to escape, right? And so for her victory, her victory in the revolution is that she leaves the public charge, that she leaves the public sphere, that her, she eventually runs away, right? She escapes in the revolution. And we see this in the confiscation documents where, Phyllis and Primus is are listed on a list of slaves who ran away in the process of being distributed as bounty. Somehow they were able to flee uh, flee their uh, continental overseers. Um, and so I think that that's like <clears throat> I think when we bring enslaved, this is a long winded way. I'm sorry, I'm going on. This is a long winded way of saying I think for ens- if, when we send our enslaved women's experiences in the revolution, rather than a story about how do we get um, how do we prove ourselves publicly useful and how do we kind of get ourselves in the public sphere. It's about how do I escape this emerging public? How do I get out of the public sphere? Like, how do I, um, how do I actually remain hidden? How can I like have a home and be in a home? Right. And that's like, what's more important. I'm so sorry. This is not my house. And so there's a lot of background (laughs) noise. I'm sorry. Um, let me mute and you take that last line again. Okay. Um, and so I think, one valuable thing that comes out of juxtaposing um, enslaved women's experiences versus say um, uh, the goals of like the women in these kind of like public spinning bees early in the revolution, that for them, freedom and empowerment is not being useful to the revolution. It's about, it's about finding a way to escape being useful to the revolution. Um, And it's about finding ways not to be, in the record, but to find ways to become out of the record, right? And I think that that's, like, really key. Well, I guess, I think that this is this is great, um, and I think it's very important to talk about the ways in which Black women's lives were always public. So, neither 1776 nor Hamilton really deals with loyalism or loyalism, mm-hmm. capital L, in, in, in any really sophisticated manner and or at all. 
What would you like people to know about loyalism? You, Sean. Sorry, you, Sean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that I think there's a few things that I think there's a few basic things. And then maybe um, I'll put it this way. I think what people should know about loyalism and the revolution that's not really dealt with um, in those musicals or in kind of popular historical representation generally. Um, I think there's two things. One is, is that like loyalism is like not everywhere a minority position, right? I mean, in some counties it is right. Um, Mm -hmm. And in some moments it is, Uh, but like loyalism actually does like have a broad base. It's not, simply in elite politics like it makes sense that we would think that um thomas hutchinson would be a loyalist right of course um everyone who held a crown office in the colonies like obviously they would be loyalists but there's many other kinds of people um uh everyday people for whom the american revolution represents a disaster in their lives right for enslaved people obviously right that um that the American Revolution is the process whereby their holder, the the people who own them, create a more powerful state to better own them, right? And so, of course, the revolution is a disaster for them, and they would be in. So, for them, like the British em- remaining in the British Empire, right, or or serving the British Empire offers them opportunities that aren't present um, on the patriot side. Sean, could you even mention? Like, how popular was the loyalist position? I mean, I feel like all too often mm-hmm. my students think that everybody was a patriot, right? And and they have a hard yeah. time understanding um, loyalist uh, sentiments. Um, yeah. So can you, can you give us yeah. some context for this or maybe set the scene uh, so that people can understand... Um, why not everybody would have been a patriot in the first place? Yeah. 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 So I think what we can say this, which is that, um, in my own research and other historians have argued very similar things, um, is that most people in the colonies are neither patriots nor loyalists in the sense of having a firm political position, um, uh, from which they'll act, uh, consistently throughout 1775 to 1783. <clears throat> in those terms, very few people are either patriots or loyalists. In fact, most people in most districts in the colonies um, are simply trying to survive and they uh, give oaths of allegiance, they sell provisions to, and they otherwise try to make their peace with whichever power is the occupying power. Right? And so, People who are fair enough um, uh, American citizens while the, while the patriots control Charleston um, become decent British subjects when the British reoccupy Charleston. And you see the same in Philadelphia. You see the same in um, everywhere in which the war is kind of contested back and forth, is that people are just trying to make, a peace, make peace with these regimes. Um, and... They may have firm political principles, like they may have, you know, they may oppose um, parliamentary taxation, or they may actually believe that like republicanism is chaotic and anarchic. Um, But those principles aren't what really animates their everyday politics. That their everyday politics are about what most people's everyday politics 
talks to her about, which is like, how can I survive and cut deals with a system that I like, that I just don't want, that I just want to survive in, right? Rather than overthrow or give my life to defend. Um, and I think that that kind of everyday aspect of politics and the revolution gets lost out. There, that being said, there are firm, committed loyalists. And I think, I mean, what they're usually talked about both in, in, in popular memories of the revolution and in some of the historical literature is the loyalists are talked about as like an elite group, that they're the upper crust of crown agents um, who, of course, right, the revolution is like the revolution destroys the offices that they held. Um, and, you know, they're the ones who get tarred and feathered, right? Um, or they're the ones that no matter what uh-huh. they did, we're always going to be on the confiscation acts. And so, and that does constitute a, a segment of the loyalist population, but there's also everyday non-elite loyalists, enslaved people who recognize that the American revolution is the process whereby their slaveholders create an even more powerful state to control them. Um, a backcountry um, yeoman farmers in South Carolina and North Carolina, um, <clears throat> you know, some of the old people who had taken part in the regulator, regulator movement in the 1760s who see the American revolution as here's these low country elite again, trying to dictate the state of affairs. Right. And so they're going to be loyalists. Um, uh, different religious minorities who their goal is to stay out of the revolution, but the Patriots always consider neutrality to be loyalism, whether you're a Moravian or a Quaker, right? Neutrality to them is loyalism, right? And so they get pushed into fleeing with the British simply because they're trying to escape like American aggression in some instances. Um, and so I think there's all kinds of non-elite loyalisms and really pragmatic loyalisms that get left out of the story when we either write them off as a minority or we just write them off as like, well, yeah, of course, Thomas Hutchinson is going to flee. I, now I wish I was speaking early America because I think this podcast would be wonderful um, for an <laughs> America class. So thank you for that detailed answer. Mm-hmm. So, thank you. Sean, to kind of like sum up our talk about the revolution, like how revolutionary do you think it was? Oh God, that's the question, right? Um, that's the me- the question. that's <laughs> it. That's a million dollars right there. How revolutionary was it? Um, I don't want to do the ticky tack thing and say, well, there was multiple revolutions, so I won't lay that ticky tack answer answer onto you. Um, Thank you, I appreciate it. I'll say this. <clears throat> I'll say this. I think the American Revolution is revolutionary. Uh, let's define this, that I don't think the American revolution has to be radical and freeing and, and liberating for it to be revolutionary. And so when I say the American revolution is revolutionary, I don't mean that it's this mass freeing event or that it's this mass, um, event of overthrowing kind of like, uh, previous chains of oppression. I don't mean like revolution in a kind of positive progressive sense like that, but that <clears throat> the American revolution is revolutionary in the sense that it, that it powerfully transforms society and politics and economics um, in what becomes the United States. And it does this for one simple reason, um, which is that in the American Revolution, um, <clears throat> the, coloni- the colonizers take over the process of colonialism, right? Under the British Empire, the British Empire needs colonists. It needs settlers. It needs planters. It needs... 
um, merchants who engage in trade between native people and, and, you know, for distant firms that are based out of London, it needs slaveholders, right. To grow the, the crops that are so profitable within the empire. Right. So the British empire depended on these colonizers on the ground, but they didn't always empower these colonizers, right. That, you know, colonizers had their own legislative assemblies, but <clears throat> the British empire had also their own imperial goals that often conflicted with the goals of colonists on the ground. Right. And we know, you know, we know this story after the French and Indian war, the seven years war, right. The British empire is trying to restrain westward expansion rather um, than facilitate it. Right. And that's an instance in which um, the colonizers and their empire are, are at odds. And so <clears throat> the American revolution is revolutionary because it creates a state in which for once, you know, unlike all these other powers in which the colonizers are essentially kept in check by their metropoles, by imperial planners who have to think about empires in a really broad way and may not care about the particular interests of colonizers in one particular region. But the, what the American Revolution does is create a state that's controlled directly by the colonizers on the ground. And that is incredibly transformative and in a disastrous way, right? It facilitates the rapid westward expansion um, <clears throat> and dispossession of indigenous people. Right. Which, of course, had been occurring for centuries, but now is like much more powerfully facilitated um, and sped up, I think, by the revolution. Um, and, you know, it does so um, in the laws of slavery. Right. That like slavery is enshrined at both the state and then what ultimately becomes like the federal level in ways that <clears throat> it simply isn't in the British Empire. Like Max mentioned earlier, slavery is <clears throat> slavery. Slaveholders actually lose political power in the British Empire after 1783. Not automatically, but over time, like the West India lobby, after 1783, gradually the West India lobby moves from being one of the most powerful ears, uh, one of the most powerful voices in Parliament's ears, to being essentially overridden. Right? And that's not what's going to happen to the, the planters' lobby, such as it is in North America. Right? Um, and so I think that's what makes the American Revolution revolutionary in that sense, is this creation of a powerful settler colonial state. So, Sean, <clears throat> do you consider yourself a Trekkie? And whether or not yes. you do, why is Star Trek the recommended show or the, the show that you would recommend for people to watch? <clears throat> yeah. So, okay. Yeah, okay. Now we're talking about... Now we're talking that about the real. That was quite a segue. That was quite a segue. Please. Now we're yeah. talking about the real reality TV for Sean. Now, now let's talk about yeah. the real stuff. Okay. You know, like yeah. uh, we're really getting into the authentic Sean Gallagher here. <clears throat> I didn't know this about you that you're yeah. a Trekkie. Yeah, no, I, I like. Be you know what? It's such a sad story. I became a Trekkie while I was on fellowship at the library company. And I didn't have any friends in Philadelphia yet. And so I was just in my room at night with no one to hang out with. And I started watching Star Trek. Oh. It's a really Wait, sad is this story. The same, is this the same year I was there? Because it was so lonely. I didn't have friends there either. Yeah, no, same. Yeah, the same exact time. <laughs> it was so lonely. Now now I'm remembering you. Yeah, that was a lonely. I was in the house too going, is anyone going to meet at the kitchen? Anyway, go ahead. Tell us no, about yeah. No, <laughs> Tell yeah. us about your Trekkie dive. <laughs> No, yeah. So I got into Star Trek there, but I mean, and there's other, there's a lot of historian Trekkies. Like, I don't know if any of you follow um, 
Dr. Robert Green the second on Twitter. He's like Rob uh, Green um, II or LL um, <clears throat> on Twitter. Like he's a major Trekkie um, and historian. So everyone who's in, interested in the confluence of those things should follow him. Um, but here's what I like about Star Trek, uh, just really briefly, is that <clears throat> you know I think most I don't like most sci-fi is like apocalyptic and dystopian, right? It's about the most sci-fi is about how the problems of the present metastasize into this, like into this like hellscape world of the future. Right. Um, and so it's like mad, it's either like Mad Max style, like the world is literally like ended civilization's done, or it's like kind of like RoboCop, Robocop, like running man where like kind of like corporate oligarchy is like taken over the world. Um, and like Star Trek is like unique in that, like, it's actually like an optimistic vision of the future. It's like a vision of the future in which like humanity, like overcame those problems. Like, and so it's like a vision of like a world that could be rather than traditional sci-fi, which is like, here's our, here's where we're headed. Um, and so like, I don't know, I find that like really positive about it. And like, that's kind of what draws me to it. It's like super utopian in a way. I don't know. Is that a good answer or is that too hokey? It is whatever you want it to be. This is a history <laughs> podcast. As long as you can back it up with your evidence, I mean, why not? All right. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Why not? Um, so yeah. No, it's a, uh, yeah. Yeah. I think it was a great answer. So really quick to do our last two little items of wrap up. We uh, mm-hmm. need to have our coffee clutch moment uh, because, you know, we are so good at, chatting that we run out of time to play allegedly so instead in our coffee clutch um we're giving you the space to offer up what you would um consider great compendium reading to the show so what recommended articles or books um would you suggest for people that want to dive deeper into this topic what's inspired you you ab- everyone who's listening to this absolutely should read The Haunting of Lynn Manuel Miranda by Ishmael Reed. Love um, it. I love that. Yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. it was on my list. I never got to it. I'll put it back on the list. <laughs> it's very good. It's a it's a short play, but it, you know, it's it and I think the play was performed, but you can publish the script. Um um and in an Ishmael Reed tells the story of Miranda being haunted by the ghosts of native Americans and by the ghosts of enslaved people and others, um, who are constantly kind of, uh, interrupting his process of like writing and doing the play to tell him, like, to ask him, like, why are you doing this? Like, why, why do you keep presenting this vision of a multi, cultural diverse and accepting and tolerant revolutionary world when you know that you know that the past wasn't that way and so i think it's an, i think you i think everyone absolutely should read it um <clears throat> the other book i'll give a shout out to um it's it was published in i think 91 or 92 and it's still 30 years later the definitive text on slavery and the revolution which is sylvia Frey's water from the rock I mean, um, hello, let's just start there. Well, let's start with the yeah. quarrels and then start there. But yes, hello. Yes. I, I love that book. Yes, absolutely. Definitely shout out Benjamin Quarles. Um, and yeah, that book came out in 1961. So it's like the 
60th anniversary, I think, this year of that book. Yeah. So, but Sylvia Frey's book, Water from the Rock, is also amazing, also a classic, and really starts from the standpoint. I mean, I think what's great about Frey's book is that it starts from the standpoint of like, well, why didn't slavery, why didn't enslaved people overthrow slavery in the revolution, right? And there's like really specific reasons. Like there's, there's contingent factors in the war and the politics of the revolution that turn a possible enslaved insurrection at the beginning of the war into the continuation of slavery by the end of the war. And so I think that book is just absolutely essential. Thanks, Sean. Agreed. Thanks, Sean. So as we wrap up here, can you tell us what's next Mm -hmm. for you and what you want people to know about your upcoming work? How can they get in touch with you if they want to learn more? So you can find me on Twitter um, at whataboutclass. um, And you can email me, smgallagher uh, at ucdavis.edu. And then as far as upcoming work, so I'm going to be starting a two-year postdoc at the David Center for the American Revolution, um, which is at the American Philosophical Society. And from there, I'm going to be revising my dissertation for a book. Um, And then I'm also... Oh, that, was, that was that oh, was your background noise. That was, that was your applause. that was your background applause to celebrate your postdoc. Oh, oh, okay. I thought <laughs> I thought I thought the invasion had begun. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Um, okay, and then just real quickly, I, I would say that um, I'm currently working on an article for slavery and abolition now. Um, I was given a revise and resubmit, uh, so I'm trying to make the revisions, um, uh, that looks at black loyalists as like the first modern refugees. Uh, and I mean that in a very specific sense, that I'm like, I'm trying to look at the ways in which <clears throat> black loyalists actually kind of set precedent for early conceptions in international law of like, what's asylum? What's like sanctuary? Like, in what cases, um, do, um, different empires and different states need to respect kind of the manumission of certain people in international law. And I'm looking at black loyalists as like a really important, um, early group in developing international law and in ideas and kind of international statecraft about like, what is a refugee? Um, so I'm working on that now. And so that's upcoming, but that's tough because that's a lot of legal history, which I'm not Spartan for legal history. Well, thank you so much, Sean. We really enjoyed this conversation today. No, wait, 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 wait. We just let him end with, I'm not smart for legal history. Thank you. We're done with the podcast. Oh, boy. Do you want to say like a part, another, a different parting shot, Sean? Okay. 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 Um, uh, yeah, so, you know, that's the work that's kind of upcoming. And, um, you know, it's a different, it's somewhat different than, you know, if my dissertation is about enslaved people's relationship to states through ownership um, and being owned and impressed by states, uh, you know, this next article, and I think where my research is taking me generally is enslaved people's relationships 
to states, to empires, to governments um, through the ren- uh, through the lens of refuge and asylum, and as being a refugee, and how African descended people have often uh, found ways to define themselves as refugee um, and as a refugee category in international laws in ways that I think um, uh, were important and often very liberating. Thank you so much, Sean. We really enjoyed talking with you today, and we really appreciate you being here with us. Thank you. No, this was a blast, and um, yeah, no, it was... Thanks for letting me gab on about early American nerdy stuff for so long. I don't often get to do this. (laughs) Anything for you, Sean. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, buddy. As always, you can find us at historiansonhousewives.com, where you can propose your own episode topic, ask us questions, and send us feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at HistoriansH. And don't forget, you can like and review the podcast on your podcast platform. Thank you, Sean Gallagher. This show was brought to you with the support by Barbara and Mark Spear, Saddleback Community College, Molly Callahan, Dr. Joaquin Galarza, Courtney Crow, Lara Loper, Louis Asio de Dios, and the Agipon Foundation. And remember, scholars do bravo too. Hit me up. I'm vaccinated. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.